Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with the executive editor of Newsbusters, your host, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the Newsbusters podcast. Tim Graham here with Nick Night Train Fonda Carroll to analyze the third GOP presidential debate uh, with NBC News. And I think we just have to concede better than expected. Yeah, absolutely. Like, this is one of the times where I'm really happy to be proven wrong on something where I re- listeners will know that we've, we were predicting all sorts of really left-leaning questions, attacking from the left, forgetting the fact that this is a Republican debate for a Republican primary for Republican voters. NBC really put uh, the concerns of Republican voters front and center for a lot of these questions. Yes. Now, obviously, MS, uh, MRC founder and President Brett Bozell had sent them a letter saying, why don't you address some of these issues that are of importance to Republicans? They did a lot of that. So I think the moment we had last night, I don't know how many minutes we were in, but my boy Ben, our producer, had tweeted, better than the Fox debates. <laughs> I, I Ouch. Yeah, I think that was a lot of our, our, our takes because you didn't have questions that were like, Please attack your spend the next like five minutes attacking your opponent or or the, the the ridiculous question of like who would you vote off the island if this was Survivor? Yeah, that yeah. was especially bad. And obviously, in the last debate, we had this uh, Ilya Calderon from Univ- Univision asking a bunch of left wing questions. So uh, I think it's uh, we didn't even do a tally yet, but uh, not as many left wing questions in the NBC debate. It, it really had a fairly neutral sound. Yeah, it, w- it was actually really surprising. Yeah, so like for the last debate, you had Calderon, who was basically just spewing a lot of misinformation about gun crime in America, basically saying it uh, the 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 the, um, the misnomer that gun crime is only an issue in America. Meanwhile, other like Central and South American countries are rife with gun crime and and gun violence and all that. But again, like we're seeing, like just looking at just some of my notes here, like just you had a lot of issues that are really important to Republican voters, like banning TikTok, the influence of China through this social media, this spying app, and just social engineering influence through this app. Uh, drug and border tra- uh, drug trafficking and border security. And the big thing that we took away, especially after the second Fox debate, no climate change questions mm-hmm. at all. It's been asked, you yeah. know. I mean, I, if I was NBC, you would want to say, let's not repeat stuff that was in the other debates. I think that that's best for the voters. I think it makes it more newsworthy because you're probably likely to get pretty much the same answers to the same question. Mm-hmm. So, so that was definitely a plus. One of the few things that... We had noticed um, that people didn't like was Lester Holt basically sort of lectured Tim Scott like, well, when it comes Mm -hmm. to gas prices, you can't just change it overnight. So give us something that'll really matter. And a lot of people were making the point that gas prices are on, you know, on markets and whatnot, is that the gas price started going up after Biden was elected, like before he was inaugurated. Yeah, like literally, you could just watch it on the graphs, just immediately start going up. And it's like what Tim Scott and a lot of the candidates were saying. It's about predicting the future. And when you have a stable future and you're allowing them to operate the way they need to to get to extract energy from the ground, they're going to be able to lower their prices because they're going to be able to predict things going forward. And Lester Holt didn't like that fact, but that's that's the basic idea of economics as a social science, right? So 
he didn't like it. Tim Scott schooled him. The other respondents, the other uh, candidates also pushed back on that and letting him know, like, this is how this works. And it's the best way to lower prices just generally, because not only are people paying less for heating their homes, they're paying less for uh, fuel for their vehicles. And then the price of fuel for the trucks to get all their stuff to stores. It's easy stuff to understand. It is. And that's where you just say, uh, why don't they just understand the way prices work? And it's especially funny because they all want to say, well, Biden has no effect on this. You can't blame Biden on this. This is beyond his control. We've seen the the fact checkers and reporters in general try to do that. I do want to go, Nick, to the opening salvo mm-hmm. from Vivek Ramaswamy. Oh, yeah. I had to say that was what a lot of Republican voters wanted somebody to say to them. Oh, um, yeah. It would have been a little more awkward after like a half an hour or an hour of questions. But to say, you know, you've been corrupt. You did all this Russian collusion garbage. Uh, if I had been in the theater in Miami, I would have broken out into applause in the middle of that. Oh, yeah. And yeah, especially because it's it's you, you, like like we were saying beforehand as part of the the MRC criticism of giving NBC a debate at all before we saw what it is that they were able to put forward. It's NBC has long been an adversary to the Republicans. They've long smeared and did everything they can to sort of limit Republican victories, limit the Republican message. And why are, were they rewarded with a debate? And he, he basically said what a lot of Republicans were saying leading up to it is that NBC shouldn't have had this. They're ones that push misnomers and lies for years and years and well, we'll see going forward if if this this debate performance by NBC bought them some sort of good uh, good uh, good standing with uh, Republican voters and possibly getting them uh, the chance to do a general election debate. I would think that uh, one of the reasons they had to be well behaved would be um, the Republican half of the uh, the Commission on Presidential Debates might be more amenable to Lester or Kristen or somebody from NBC moderating next fall. It's possible. I mean, based on what Kristen Welker did in the in the debates in 2020, that we had all kinds of reasons to be skeptical that they were that she was going to be fair in this case. Certainly, watching Kristen Welker's interview with Trump on Meet the Press is one of those two, which takes us around to fact checkers. Oh yeah. Because once again, last night, when a Republican says, speaking of Kristen Welker, that uh, uh, Democrats support abortion up until birth, and they all of them get very upset, like that's not. That's not happening. Usually the response, and it was on NBCNews.com in the live blog last night, late-term abortions are exceedingly rare. Well, that doesn't make the point. You're not rebutting the point. Rare, but they happen. Right. Thousands of them, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, Thousands of babies that are basically viable are killed in abortions at a rate which, if it was mass shooting victims— They'd care. They would say that America is a terrible country. So, I mean, this is this is one of those areas. So the other, the fact check that really went around last night was they were, NBC was trying to proclaim it was half true that that uh, that Ron DeSantis flew out 700 people from uh, from Gaza or Israel. I seen criticism last night where basically NBC's half true is like he wasn't flying the plane himself, so he really didn't get them out of there. Even though like he like he used uh, Florida funds to help fund the nonprofits to go over there, uh, charter the flights, get there and come back. You're, you're helping facilitate the returning of Florida citizens. It is what it is. And basically the thing is, it's like we, we 
like we say, it's like if if only he was flying the plane himself, then it would be completely accurate. Or right? then they would complain that his, you know, he didn't fly it right. But I mean, yeah. it's what's interesting about this is, you know, Curtis noticed in real time that NBC uh, Dasha Burns did a story on I think the Today Show underlining that DeSantis had done this. So it's like, it's not like NBC didn't know that he did this. They just somehow want to discredit the accomplishment. They're going to fact check him chartering flights to bring Flor uh, Floridians home, but they're going to say that he's human trafficking when he sent when he's chartering flights to send illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities. Yes, that w which is exactly what 60 Minutes did a few weeks ago. They suggested he's a criminal for sending immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, then there was the, uh, Tim Scott said, I believe there are sleeper cells in America. And NBC was like, this is likely false. You, we, we don't know, but our opinion is it must be wrong. Except we also have like like internal documents from um, like Homeland Security saying like be on the lookout for extremists on the border and the ideas coming through. And some of the people we've captured are on terrorist watch lists. So the 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 idea that you can definitively say we don't know that is you or it's likely not true. You don't you don't know, so don't fact check it because at some point you could be proven wrong. Except especially with what we see, where it's like so and so is known to the FBI, known to authorities ahead of time, or mm -hmm. the FBI, like with the ISIS inspired uh, attacks from a few years ago, they they were on the radar, determined not to be a threat, and then shortly thereafter launch an attack so and then the other one i noticed was that cnn put on daniel dale after the debate to say um that uh, you can't say the biden's accepted bribes or anything that gets anywhere close to that now obviously the biden's have taken in millions and millions of dollars from burisma in ukraine from russia from china, china uh and the, the comber committee keeps adding countries romania Mm -hmm. And they always have this habit of trying to say, as Daniel Dale did, well, there's no evidence and the that they've been bribed. And the subpoenas went out on Wednesday, the same day as the debate, too. So they announced that the subpoenas were going out to Hunter and, uh, J and uh, Joe's brother. And so we still have all this coming in, but they're just very quick to say there's no evidence. But there's the difference with what we saw with the Russia collusion hoax where Again, no evidence, but they were definitely on the front lines of trying to push this and making it like it was a real thing. So, you know, he was fact-checking Ramaswamy, who was trying to say we're in Ukraine because of the Bidens taking money from the Ukrainians, which, yeah, that might be a little out there. But they it's just the whole idea that the fact-checkers are there to, mm -hmm. to pounce on anybody criticizing the Bidens and their family business. Uh, then we have a, a set of things from MSNBC. Uh, you you watch The View on a regular basis. They were discussing Lawrence O'Donnell. Yeah, because like in the in MSNBC's post debate analysis, where they were, it was oddly they were almost. It was almost like a vague criticism of the fact that they of their own debate in a way where you had Lawrence O'Donnell basically saying the debate was just in case Trump choked on a cheeseburger, which is this sort of really morbid sort of dark way to look at the Republican uh, field and just like Republican voters who might be weighing uh, other candidates besides Trump. But one of the things that I really thought was poignant about that is he says that it's in case Trump chokes on a cheeseburger, but not in case he goes to prison. Right. So it's like, it's almost like a tacit admission of 
that these lawsuits and uh, charges against him may not hold water and will eventually not be the reason why he either can't be president or why uh, voters would turn against him and uh, in the in a primary and vote for another candidate. But for him, it's just in case Trump dies. Well, I think they're really eager at the idea that Trump's going to get convicted of something. They think that's going to be the silver bullet. Uh, but I think they're not pondering the idea that if the Trump prosecutions fail, if some of them fail, it's going to totally underline the point that these were, you know, ridiculous prosecutions designed just to garner negative publicity. And boy, do they garner negative publicity. Once again, Rich Noyce did a study. 93% of Trump's coverage is negative, and a lot of it is Trump's indictments. Uh, then we also had uh, Stephanie Rule got mad because the candidates didn't denounce Trump enough for her. Uh, that's that's yeah, rich. Not enough Trump bashing, which in previous debates, their criticism was that the moderators weren't going after Trump enough or teeing up the candidates to go after Trump enough, which this is the same criticism, but they just won't put the blame on the moderators this time because it's their friends. They did. And, and there was criticism of Trump. And yes, the lead. It was it was literally the lead question where it's just like everybody go down the line, say why uh, bash please please bash Trump, and uh, say why you're a better candidate. Which that part is a fair argument, but like the idea that every one of them is like let's just go around now and please bash Trump. Yeah, it, it, I think she's upset. Somebody had said Chris Christie wasn't booed, which was a sign that Chris Christie wasn't on his normal tack about Trump. Um, and he he said some things, but yeah, he he yeah. he didn't get booed. And then Rachel Maddow was somehow upset that when they got to the abortion question, which was late, mm -hmm. which was fine. Uh, Tim Scott didn't say he wanted a 15 week ban. He wanted a 15 week limit. What? Just like nitpicking over what like what you're calling it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it is true that basically the discussion they're having is everybody will say I'm 100% pro life, but I have a different tactic. You know, Nikki Haley's like, well, we have to do something that will pass through the Congress. And so she's tactically moderate, but the, the pundits all say she's a moderate. And I don't think that's really the way she wants to be perceived on abortion. But that's everybody's trying to to figure out what their pro-life answer is. Yeah, especially like if if you're if they're going to label put put those kinds of labels on it, like you would probably argue Chris Christie has more of the moderate one where he's where he was putting forward the argument of like, We've been saying for years that this isn't the pro-life side has been saying for decades that this isn't a national issue. It is a states issue. Keep it to the states, which I believe there's there's probably a lot of Republicans who do believe that and would want to go that way. But again, they they want they, they're upset that the debate didn't allow for Republicans to be viewed in a really negative light on abortion that the other debates have sort of shown, like they really pressed them on, like, why aren't you like, that was one of the really bizarre things about like the Fox questions where they were basically asking them like, like, how are you going to be less, how are you going to come off as less extreme on abortion in the future, which was kind of weird, but the way NBC was sort of framing the questions was a little bit better for, for them. just being like, explain your position. And, you know, obviously, it's a fair question to say the the, the pro life side just lost, you know, in these states. Obviously, in Ohio, so you you have to face reality on that, and you have to ask why did these pro life things fail? I think the states are still working through this, and maybe the states will come to more of a middle ground. But uh, I think if NBC had asked this question like number one last night, it would have looked like a more biased question. But mm -hmm. yes, it is reality 
that the uh, uh, here in Virginia, I couldn't stop watching them say, mega extremists will take away your abortions. So they can feel cocky like they're winning on that issue. Now, if you like what we do at Newsbusters and the Newsbusters podcast, remember you can always send us in your nickels and dimes or better at mrc.org slash donate. Joining us now on the podcast, rejoining us on the podcast, Brad Slager, who writes about the media for Red State and Town Hall and the Liable Sources podcast. How clever. Yes, I uh, figured I had to piggyback a little bit, and then Stelter has to go and get dispatched, so uh, (laughs) now I'm standing on my own with that one for the most part. Well, Oliver Darcy still has the newsletter. Oh, brother, does he? It's remarkably (laughs) silly. Uh, So let's start with the really overarching generic thoughts about the NBC-Salem debate. Uh, Now, we we should state for the record, your websites are part of Salem Media. So. Yeah, I guess full disclosure. Right? <laughs> we were uh, we were we were part of the mix. I also enjoyed how, speaking of Oliver Darcy, he and a few others were expressing quite a bit of concern that NBC was normalizing Salem Media. Yes, by partnering with them because I guess it's regarded as such a nefarious media empire. Oh, they're conservative and Christian based. How well, dare they? I, I did the column on this the other day, and the thing that was really funny about it is, is and Brent, Brent Baker really enjoyed this point, CNN, Darcy's Network, also suggested Hugh Hewitt as a moderator should they be selected by the Republicans. So at least Darcy's bosses thought Salem Media wasn't discredited. Yeah, uh, Darcy did this several times. And it's just what they're trying to do is say, we're going to attach everything to to Dinesh D'Souza and and really ignore what Hugh Hewitt has done and what he did in this debate. And I, I think we all came away thinking, how did this turn out so well? Uh, is that the way you thought? Yeah, we were because um, we you know we had, we did live blogging over at Red State and we did coverage at Town Hall as well. And it was like you guys had said in the previous segment that it was a little surprising that NBC moderated their leftism. It wasn't too bad of a uh, injection of their narratives into the debate, which was surprising. A lot of people thought maybe that was because of Hewitt's presence. They they said they had worked on something like, I don't know, nine or 10 hours of prep for the debate. So they think that he might have been able to kind of tone down some of their uh, expected rhetoric, I guess. Yes, the, the obvious joke now is, well, let's make sure Hugh Hewitt does all the debates throughout the rest of the primaries, if if that's the effect it has. I think it just shows you it's not that difficult to just do questions that are about, please grant us your view on these issues. It doesn't have to be a gotcha festival. Yeah, and if you you look at that, the last debate, the one they held on Fox, it was... Pretty much a WWE SmackDown type of thing where mm. they, they kept sniping at each other. The moderators couldn't get control of anything. And we're sitting at home looking for the remote half the time because they weren't really talking issues and expressing their platform so much as just trying to snipe at each other. So this at least was a better presentation as far as getting agenda items out there for voters to see. And some of that might have to do with there are fewer candidates. Yeah, that helped as well, except, you know, Ramaswamy couldn't help himself. I mean, he 
He was kind of amusing to watch because he's always that guy that can deliver about 10% of items that you say, aha, that's good uh, good point, but he doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just ends up derailing the rest of it. So, you know, he brings up, how, you know, we shouldn't have NBC here. It should be conservative panelists. Okay, great idea. And then he starts railing on them about Russian Gate, and he starts challenging the moderators with questions. And it's just like, <laughs> hit the brakes, buddy. I like I, I, I always like it when they have to say, we ask the questions. We don't have to answer any stinking <laughs> questions. And it's like, there's one of the reasons why the American public doesn't really like you because you're not, you don't, you won't allow yourself to be questioned. Now, this is obviously not the proper forum for that. I liked his point. Um, I think he had more trouble um, making high heel jokes and. I said Dick Cheney in high heels is Liz Cheney. I mean, <laughs> yes, um, that was a that was a little bit of a disturbing image he was conjuring up there too. But that's uh, I think that's him kind of trying to lean a little bit too on the millennial vote. He seems to appeal to that kind of uh, like that Twitter snark crowd. He he always seems to try to get into that wheelhouse for some reason. Which I guess is why he was making TikTok videos, and then he had to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tell Nikki Haley to get her daughter in line. I was not aware. I guess I should have been aware that the daughter's 25. Uh, so, yeah, it's not like she's a she's an eighth grader. Uh, but, yeah, th- I think overall it was good. I think we're, we're hoping the News Nation debate will be also good. Um, there are so many conservative journalists and outlets that could host these debates, and especially if you already have a partner like Rumble, or you could say put it on X slash Twitter. Um, so we'll hope for that. Now, th- let's talk about this whole idea that just bothers me, where people come out of these debates and say, "Why did we have one?" Uh, you know, Jonathan Carl came on with George Stephanopoulos the next day on Good Morning America and said, "You know, I call this the Twilight Zone debate because they're all denying the reality that none of them have a chance." And and that really bothers me because. Yeah, if you, if you don't give them any airtime, they're not going to have a chance. And Rich Noyce has a, a new study that shows you these guys are getting tiny fractions of network airtime. They're really yeah. – this the Republican campaign isn't being covered unless you count Trump's court appearances. No, that's absolutely the case. And they, they're so supremely focused on Trump. And meanwhile, Trump himself is not focused on the issues. Pretty much any of the items we saw brought up during this debate are not readily on the tongue of Donald Trump. He's instead always going after his enemies or the courts and what have you. And it's not really a case of him presenting an agenda on behalf of the voters. So this is a good way for Republican candidates to contrast themselves against that so they can at least let people see what they have planned for an agenda. Well, this is where I, you know, part of the conventional wisdom right now is to say, well, the fewer candidates there are against Trump, the more, the better chance they have. And look, we had that logic in 2016. Once it gets down to Ted Cruz and Kasich, then we can really see the news media start to pay attention to the other contenders. And they still didn't. No, no, the, the media wants Trump for obvious reasons. I mean, one, he's a ratings grabber, but two, they think he's damaged goods enough that come the general election, he can get shot down pretty easily. So they don't really have much interest in anybody else. 
And that's why a debate is that much more significant, because at least now we can see there's others in the race and we can see what they're representing. Right. It's like this is where the candidates actually get some fraction of visibility um, so that they can be discussed. And and even Rich Noise even found coverage of the debates is rather tiny. Uh, they you know they yeah. they don't spend a lot of time and they're not certainly not granting interview time to these candidates uh, at least as much as you would expect. Yeah, not really. I mean, you'll you'll see Ramaswamy more often than anybody else, and that's only because he's enough of a firebrand that he brings some controversy and might bring some clicks. But yeah, nobody else is even getting a big notice, and we we see this even with the post debate coverage you know the first question was what about donald trump and then everybody got into the platform but all the post debate coverage is who won donald trump did even though he wasn't there and they just segue right back onto his name and that's they get their their agenda set right there and we all understand what the polls are showing that's you know that's let's acknowledge reality um but Certainly, these networks that have hosted the debates, whether it's Fox, whether it's NBC, doesn't share the opinion that on some level, uh, as Ron DeSantis said, if Trump really wants to run for this office, he should really feel like he needs to show up in front of voters, whether those voters are in in Miami or or watching it at home. Um, look, he has every right to decide I don't I don't have to do this. If maybe if I my lead went from forty to twenty, uh, maybe I'd have to do it. Um, and I, I suspect when we get closer to the actual caucuses and votes, he might he might take part. But obviously, he hasn't really done it here in twenty twenty three. Yeah, and he, you know, again, he doesn't have to. So he he doesn't even get into specifics as far as any of the policies. I mean, we saw Wednesday night when. Items like abortion and foreign policy came up. There were very specific responses from people, and they had actual plans in place for those items. We don't really see that when Trump speaks because he's just—he's about bombast. He's about the larger platitudes, and he doesn't have to get into the minutia because he's not really being challenged on it. So I don't know that we're going to have any kind of remedy as far as that goes. I certainly would say Trumpless debates have more room to be like this debate was, which was pretty substantive. And you could flip over to Trump's speech and he's talking about Hannibal Lecter. And you're like, huh? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What? He, he, he doesn't need to, you know, answer those detailed questions. You know, what would you do about Hamas? How would you bridge over to Gaza and Israel? He, you know, no, he just, he can talk in pop culture quotes and, you know, come up with catchy derogatory nicknames and everybody will swoon over him. And that's that's his policy. He's just, he's set in stone right there. So, yeah, yep. this is the only way we're really getting substantive answers right now. Uh, and so I, you know, I can't say I have a lot of hope for the campaign coverage getting better as we go. Rich found that 93% of Trump's coverage was negative, which was a couple of ticks higher than what he what got he, during his presidency. It was usually 89 or 90. It's up to 93. And of course, you can't really say most of their Trump coverage is campaign coverage. Most of their Trump coverage is indictment coverage. Right. So, I mean, I have made the joke that Donald Trump's more afraid of debates than he is of indictments. <laughs> it's true. I mean... He, he, 
He loves you, you to. You can't fundraise off a debate as well as he can off of well, and he, court yeah, appearances. He, he loves to. I think he did this the other night. He always says, you know, they're not indicting me; they're indicting you. Well, no, not exactly, but um, uh, yeah. Um, so one of the other things we've been covering, uh, I know you've been covering, is the emerging scandal of all of our facts first mainstream media outlets using stringers in uh, in Gaza who turn out to love Hitler or uh, uh, they've shown photos of one of these guys, Hassan Ezlaia, uh, literally being kissed on the cheek by the Hamas commander in Gaza. Uh, both CNN and AP dropped those, dropped the man in terms of being somebody they relied on. But the New York Times with the guy that loves Hitler, they're like, no, we're keeping him or they're bringing him back on. Um, I guess the whole, uh, the fight right now is over. Did these reporters have advanced knowledge of the massacre on October 7? And all of these media outlets are fervently denying they had it. But gosh, these journalists seem to be well-placed. Yeah, that's um, a bit of a coincidence, isn't it? That on one of the, uh, the one guy they're dropping, for instance, the photojournalist, if you looked at the AP photos that he had, they all had a similar caption that talked about how this attack was a complete surprise. Nobody saw it coming. It's on an Israeli holiday. And even the Israeli intelligence wasn't aware of this. Yet somehow a wide array of journalists happened to be on the scene, happened to be there at the right time to capture these images firsthand. It's a little bit more than curious. It, but yeah. the lack of revelation, really, from the Western media is what I see as being a problem here as far as displaying who they used and when they used them. How involved were they? How did they get there? One guy, for instance, was taking shots of the people breaching the, the gates. He was right there. And then moments later, he's taking photographs inside of Israel. So... It certainly appears he was part of those that rushed the border. And this, I think, becomes part of the issue, which is it's, it, the, you look embedded with Hamas. If this is what you're actually taking pictures of, uh, you're obviously doing it with their consent. And we have these images then of the journalists on the motorcycle with the terrorists yeah. and then possibly holding a grenade for them. I mean, that, that is not what we call good optics. Yes, exactly. If you, um, you know, you said all the, you know, we're talking about four major news outlets here, by the way, New York Times, CNN, AP, and Reuters. And you have to kind of look at their wording used when they made these denials, because they said no staffers were on site that morning. Mm -hmm. But that's because everybody was a freelance journalist. They were purchasing after the fact, their yeah. their content, really without vetting, it seems like, because it really falls in line with everything else we've seen in the past month, where they're just willing to swallow whatever comes out of Gaza, unfiltered, and display that on the news. And it's been tripping them up repeatedly. And now here they are having to make excuses for guys that certainly look like they were shoulder to shoulder with the terrorists that morning. And I think that, obviously, they would try to say to you, well, it's difficult to get uh, people, journalists, photojournalists, videographers on the scene who speak Arabic or Hebrew or both um, uh, and, and who are willing to be in this kind of a dangerous setting. 
we all understand it's a dangerous setting for journalists. Um, and some of these Palestinian journalists are running around saying, see, look at all the journalists Israel's killing, like they're doing that on purpose. Uh, we understand it's dangerous work, but look, this website, Honest Reporting, which is, you know, exposed this practice, has been doing this for years. And that is, you, they find that these journalists that the Western media hires, they love Hitler, they love Hamas, they, you know, they, 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 they pledge their allegiance to Hezbollah or whatever, you know, they, they, and they, every time it happens, they have to lay somebody else off. Um, so this, to some extent, is more of the same. But then we get, you know, CNN's reaction to this was Oliver Zarsi comes out with his newsletter today and says somehow CNN's being smeared. And he says that uh, honest reporting is an agenda-driven website. Well, yes, it is. It's pro-Israel. It's there to look at anti-Israel bias. Newsbusters is an agenda-driven website. But here's what makes me mad. CNN is an agenda CNN is exactly. an agenda driven network. So it's, uh, it, yeah, it, it's a lot of projection going on and I I think you see a little bit of the guilt seeping through when you see a, a persistent defense being used of don't criticize journalists because you're placing them in danger. Oh, I hate that. And that was the go-to for the New York Times what we saw Chris Hayes came out with it too. And what? yo, you're you're imperiling these journalists. It's like, excuse me, these journalists were in the neighborhoods when they were murdering citizens. I'm kind of thinking that's a little more dangerous than pointing and noting some details about the journalists. Yeah, we understand they're in a dangerous setting. They're not being endangered by Tim Graham and Brad Slager saying that CNN stinks. Uh, that's, you know, but that's very much the Jim Acosta line. Criticize us and you're endangering our lives. Well, I, also, too, look at kind of yesterday, all four of the outlets were coming out with similar messaging. And basically they were saying the same thing, which was these guys have done nothing wrong. That's why we're firing them. <laughs> or they um, would say we're we. But they're basically at least CNN and AP were sort of like. There's nothing they actually did for us that we found wasn't true. It's just the the kiss photos a little too much. Yeah, <laughs> being kissed by Hamas is not the branding we want at CNN. Yeah. And this, but this is what upsets me is that you know CNN and these guys run around and say you know we are the guardians of fact. We are the we are the guardians of democracy. And it's like no, you're hanging out with a bunch of terrorists who are attacking a democracy in Israel. Yeah, they, you know, they got elected once, but have never submitted themselves for an election ever again. Maybe they'd win, but, you know, they're not exactly showing that they are a record of democracy. They're certainly not showing they have a record of treating humans decently. Yeah, and the, the real problem here is this is, as we've seen in the past month, this is a pattern. They are willing to just take on anything that gets fed to them from Gaza, from Hamas. And, you know, using these particular journalists in their content is just another example. I mean, the AP yesterday after getting caught are now stripping down the photographs from that day. Well, Not it's, because of anything in the content of the photos, because they've had them up for a month. They just didn't like the name that was attached to them, and now they're gone. 
They didn't want anybody judging whether they were true or false. Let's take them down so people can't study them. I, yes. uh, well, look, they really want specificity. So they're going to say Hamas says, or the Gaza Health Ministry says, 10,000 dead. They want the number, and they're willing mm. to accept it from an extremely dubious source because they want to sound specific. But once again... The people who say they're the guardians of facts, they're basically saying, well, we don't actually know what the facts are. We're unable to confirm the actual body count. We're just going to use the terrorist body count. When they don't, dis they don't discriminate between civilians and their own terrorist fighters. Uh, so yeah, and Oliver Darcy kind of uh, laid it out. <laughs> to a degree, he was critical and I, when the October 7 details were coming out. And then after that, when the hospital bombing story mm -hmm. went sideways, he was a little critical, but then, of course, lapsed into that defense mode. And I think in doing so, he really exposed the media because he says, you know, there's the fog of war. You're just trying to catch up and, and everything's happening in real time. It's like, sure, but you're adding to the fog. You weren't clarifying anything. And he even said that in matters of war like this, it's of the utmost importance that news media get the facts correct. Well, then once we find out they didn't, doesn't that mean they were at the lowest level of importance? And that impugns their coverage so much more. Yeah, I think that their coverage of this so-called Israeli airstrike in the hospital is embarrassing. And that's the kind of image of embarrassment that should last. Just to say, once again, your idea of how you are the fact handlers kind of falls out the window. And I just want media outlets to have humility. And yes, we all understand it's difficult to confirm things in wartime. So don't be so eager to put the spin of a terrorist group at the top of your paper. Yeah, they, I guess the maddening part in all of this is that they don't seem to be learning their lesson. You know, just it was three days later from that hospital story that they were reporting a church collapse killed hundreds of people. Then the sun came up the next day and the church is still standing. <laughs> so once again, this is just days from getting tripped up. But I think they could have the, the maddening part really for me is that they could avoid this so easily. Because when you see that apology that came out from The New York Times like a week later, it got far less coverage, of course. They didn't blast headlines on the front page. But, you know, there was, OK, sure, we got things wrong. There's an element in there, though, that really struck me because they said in the letter, we relied too heavily on claims by Hamas and didn't make it clear that those claims could not be immediately verified. That's a simple sentence that you could have plugged into your 1,200 word report on day one, and you'd have been in the clear right there. Just illustrate that succinctly and don't blast the headlines that Israel bombed the hospital and your reputation is fine. They couldn't do that. I think the a general media criticism that we could all discuss, conservatives, liberals, socialists, whatever, is that some people now are going to consume their media from tweets or memes on Facebook. And everybody's concerned about that. They thought that's what elected Trump. But um, you, you certainly hope that people who consume media go beyond that headline and read the thousand-word story. So as you're saying, it's possible they could put the careful language in the in the long story, but the headline is still suggestive. So it's a real, you know, everybody wants a clickbait headline. You can't, 
can't have a Namby Pamby headline. We're we're always told make it spicy, fellas. Yeah, <laughs> you got to get the grabber. You got to get the clicks. I understand that, but you know, at, at what expense too? Because now we're to the point where anything coming out of the Middle East right now, you have to look at it and say, oh, really? <laughs> you know, and we always see nothing but round numbers. Five hundred died. Three hundred died. Seven hundred died last night. You know. They get these immediate figures that are based on what, and they're perfectly round headline figures that a day or two later get proven wildly incorrect. So, okay, you get the initial clicks, and yet, like the Gallup poll showed a couple of weeks ago, more people distrust the media than trust it. And where do we go from there? Well, I was going to say my sort of my routine thought about all of this, where I really get upset, is the so-called objectivity of sources like. <laughs> the United Nations has an opinion on Israel. Oh, really? And people have no sense of how the United Nations has been hostile to Israel for decades. They, they're going to presume the United Nations or UNICEF, trick or treat for UNICEF, they're just going to assume that those are nonpartisan sources. The same goes with human rights groups like Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch also have a pretty anti-Israel bias. Yeah, and and the media's got that bias. So we're sitting here looking at news reports for, what, the last couple of weeks of how many Jewish threats, a couple of murders, a lot of violence, protests on campus. Everybody's targeting the Jewish people. And then I think it was CBS today that came out and said there's a sharp rise in Islamophobia. Yeah. No, oh, really? What the heck? Oh, it came from CARE. Well, let's that was wrap. Their source. Yes. Well, of course. Anytime there's an Islamophobia report, it's either CARE or the Southern Poverty Law Center. Yes. Uh, your uh, red state, has, speaking of CARE, um, we have this incident in California where a man mm -hmm. was murdered, a protester, Jewish protester was murdered. And Jennifer Van Lahr has been uh, developing that story. We, you know, we can't expect the mainstream media to do it, but uh, what did she find? Uh, basically, that the yeah, the media has been whitewashing the story. Um, I did in my column the other day. I just did a piece where there's been numerous incidents of this violence directed at Jewish individuals that the press is just soft peddling. We've got the president of a synagogue in Detroit was killed, right? And they first came out and said, "Not a hate crime." They didn't even have a suspect, right? Um, How do you I know? Mean, I'm sorry, but it, it doesn't usually happen that way. You've got the individual in Texas that was planning on bombing his Jewish neighbor, but they reported as certain people of faith. And they did the same thing with this incident in California. They kept saying he died on the scene. He died during a protest. It was an was, altercation. Yes. And there was numerous eyewitness accounts. The guy got clocked in the head directly, fell on the ground and died as a result of the attack. And the authorities were even investigating this as a murder on site. And the press would not report on that. So Jennifer has been willing to give voice to the authorities and what they're saying. And that's upset a few people because how dare she be accurate? Well, this is where we always say it's good for that there are conservative websites out there to develop stories that the liberal media want to somehow fuzz over or not uh, or not uh, explore, like you know, transgender shooter manifestos. Um, so it's left to conservative mm -hmm. sites 
to develop these stories. And, and it is mind-boggling, and this is where you want to look at the Stelters and the Darcys and say, I thought you were for sunlight. I thought you were for journalism. And it turns out these sorts of stories, you're not for journalism. And when you've slimed these sources, as uh, what Stelter's title of his book, The Network of Lies, you're, yeah. sa- you're saying don't trust these, this journalism. So, I mean, obviously, newsbusters, we bust on the liberal media. But these people who claim to be the objective journalists bust on the conservative media as much as, as we bust on the liberal media. Well, also, too, look at uh, Stelter's own language. I'm sure you recall him saying this in a number of times when Fox News would, say, get stripped up on a story or report on something they didn't approve of. He would impugn, oh, they don't have the same editorial rigor that we do. That We have to filter through numerous layers of editing. Okay, well, what happened with the hospital bombing? Right. What happened with the church collapse when you were blatantly incorrect? Where was that filter? And they don't have any criticism of that. That's the amazing part. Well, revealing part, I should say. Yeah. I mean, this is where there's everybody relies on on what they call the mainstream sources, at least for some of their news. And uh, yeah, that's, it doesn't make them look good. This, these are the sorts of incidents that say there's a reason why so many people are telling Gallup poll they don't trust the media. It's sad. Sure. It's sad. You know, you'd like journalism we could trust. And I think it starts with them having a little more humility and a little less of an agenda, sort of like we got in that debate. Yeah, that would be that would be healthy. I think one of the real flashpoints of this problem, though, comes from this, the likes of AP and Reuters, because they are a syndicate that feeds so many other news outlets. So when they yes. begin with this misinformation in the Middle East, it gets blasted across major news items, and it takes a long time to repair that. We see the root of the problem a couple summers ago when the the AP building that they shared in Gaza Mm -hmm. was bombed by Israel. And they first came out and said, how dare they attack freedom of speech in the press? (laughs) Oh, by the way, they shared the offices with Al Jazeera. Oh, and by the way, Hamas, which is why the building came down in the first place. So there's clearly a little bit of cohesion between them and this outfit. And I think that leads to a lot of the problems we're seeing today. I'm sure what we all said at the time was AP, the reporting geniuses, they're such smart people, but they were unaware that Hamas was in the same building. Yeah, exactly. Nobody's really believing that. They're the experts in the Middle East, but they didn't know what was happening on the eighth floor. I think somebody came out later who wasn't with AP anymore. And he said, we saw them launch the rockets you know, at the uh, down on the you know on the street by the by the building, like maybe you could, maybe you guys could kind of figure out you're in a you're in a bad neighborhood. Yeah, Find a new office. Couldn't connect those dots, huh? Hmm, let's see. They were shooting rockets. We got bombed an hour later. I wonder <laughs> what the connection is. <laughs> you could find it's... you could find a safer place to put your laptop. Uh, all right. Well, Brad yeah. Slager joined us. Remember, he does the Liable Sources podcast, L-I-E, Liable. And he's at Red State and Town Hall. Thank you for coming on, Brad. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love coming out with you guys. So if you want to know what's going on, you got to come to Newsbusters once, twice, 24 times a day. Thanks for listening.